HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Cooking in Mexican from A to Z. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron Sanchez, alongside my beautiful mother. Sarela Martinez. And, of course, we're, we're broadcasting uh, with, on Heritage Radio Network, HRN, who allow us to be able to transmit all these beautiful messages about food, culture, uh, lifestyle, and all that good stuff. And we just want everyone to be able to kind of embrace this beautiful mission about food and all the artisanal people behind it and wine and tequila and all that good stuff. So today we have the... The really distinct pleasure of inviting somebody that's going to speak to us about a subject matter that I think is really important. I think is overlooked a lot of times as far as it's uh, building blocks for Mexican food and ingredients and just needs the love. Of course, we're talking about Carlos Yescas. He's here visiting from us all the way from Newcastle, uh, England, Great Britain. Um, we're really excited to have him. Uh, let me just give, let me just wax a little bit poetic about this gentleman because he is really somebody special. He's a food scholar, obviously, uh, conducting extensive doctoral research and on the principles and relegations of cheese. He's the co-founder of Lactographia Cheesemonger. Forgive my uh, pronunciation. But he's also uh, the first artisan, uh, artisan cheese distribution, distribution company in Mexico. He is uh, the co-founder of Lacteo, a Latin American platform that through education and instruction, we seek better conditions for artisanal cheesemakers in the regions and their communities and empower local consumers to recognize the quality of local and foreign products. This is beautiful because he's also acknowledging all of the uh, and trying to create this beautiful network and making sure that everyone has the proper um, the proper recognition that they deserve, which is awesome. He also published his wonderful book called Quesos Mexicano in 2013. And his work has been a, a subject matter of an episode of Taste of Mexico with our dear friend, of course, Chef Rick Bayless, which we all love and care for so much. And Carlos has traveled the, in the, throughout the Western world documenting cheese traditions and the stories and currently researching raw milk use in cheesemongering around the world. And I, hopefully we can talk about that because the idea of pasteurizing cheeses and all that good stuff. So 
Uh, we're going to kind of touch upon cremas, requesón, panela, and artisanal cheeses uh, in the Mexican diaspora. So everybody, please welcome Carlos Yesca. Orale. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Sarela, so much. What a wonderful introduction. I'm so excited to be with you in this um, radio show. Pardon my voice. <clears throat> I have had a call for the past two weeks. It's getting better. It's not COVID, but uh, we're all, all set to go <laughs> here. Outstanding. I'm thrilled to be able to learn directly from the master because we had Paula Lambert here who does Mexican style cheeses and charming as she is and adorable as she is. It was that they're not the Mexican cheeses that, that, you know, that we know and love and that we wonder why they are not available in the United States. And I think Carlos is going to be able to tell us that. And I'm so excited to, ha to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sarela. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk. I also love Paula Lambert. We have traveled together in Europe, learned about some of the traditions of cheese in Italy together, actually. So we, we're good friends, and I'm very happy that you already have her. Uh, and I hope I can bring something different than what she uh, already shared with you. So, Carlos, how do you think we should begin about this? So sh should we start to tackle the subject with the crema and then kind of go up from there as far as like sort of, you know, do things derive from there? Like how, how, how do you want to, how, how can we start best? So I think always the best place to start when we're talking about cheese and dairy is milk, actually. Uh, you know, it seems obvious, but it's... Um, but normally we stop thinking about milk the moment we start thinking about queso or crema, you know, and, and really it's milk that we have to uh, pay attention. You can make good crema, you can make good queso, you can make good anything if you have good milk. And people normally say, you know, you have to have good milk, but then no one explains you what good milk actually is, which is kind of like annoying. Like, oh, you're looking for quality products and you're like, what does that even mean? So quality products in milk is very, very easy. It's a bit scientific and a bit romantic. In the scientific side is you need to have a um, good amount of fat and good amount of protein. And you build fat and protein by, in two ways. You, you build it by feeding your animals correctly. And that's how you feel fat, build fat. And you build protein by giving your animals enough exercise, <clears throat> right? This is crazy because most people think that, you know, cows are just there to be standing, but actually <laughs> cows and sheep and goat that are playing, walking around and everything produce better milk because they have better, higher contents of protein. Um, that's why when we talk about quality milk, we're also talking about um, husbandry practices, you know, taking care of your animals in a humane way so they can move around, they can eat good, um, and, so, and so you end up with better milk. And so that's kind of the beginning of all of the conversation that we can have about crema and everything else. Now, now, and so, I, I, yeah, and not that, but are there systems in place that regulate the quality of milk? Uh, in Mexico, and I know, I know there's, there's practices in place in California, but is, is that the case right now? So definitely there are in, in, in Mexico, because Mexico is the third largest producer of milk in the continent, right? Is, is, uh, it has, obviously we have the United States first, then Brazil, and then Mexico. Mexico produces a lot of good uh, milk. And um, a lot of milk in, in you know, Hidalgo and Aguascalientes is of very high quality. And it is normally actually used in the country. 
But Mexicans consume so much cream, so much uh, nata, so much queso, that we have to bring um, milk from other parts of the world, mostly from the United States and from Canada, because we consume a lot of it. So Mexico has a, a normativa, which you know sort of sets the standards for milk, uh, is a very good standard. And, and the only thing is that there are a lot of forces I'm just going to call them forces at the moment, which are always pushing <laughs> for those regulations to be watered down so that they can give us worse products, but still call it milk or still call it queso. And so that is um, what the battle is, not only in Mexico, but also in Guatemala and El Salvador. Some of the battle in the United States is, is trying to figure out how to protect that good quality that we're talking about. Um, Mexico is a good place for, for regulation. Mexico is a place that has all of the regulations. The big problem in Mexico is that no one is paying attention of, of those regulations, right? It's, it's not like we are lacking rules. We have other rules. It's just no one is enforcing them. And what can we do about that? Nothing? We can do a ton about it. And so on both sides of the border, I think the first thing is consumers need to demand better quality. Consumers drive this, right? If if we eat whatever, you know, is put in front of us and we never ask where it's coming from and we don't ask, you know, what how the animals are treated or um, what those animals are eating, then they're going to give us whatever stuff there is. But if we're actually always asking, um, there the supply chain is trying to cater to us. And so that is very easy to get it. That's why in Mexico, ironically, you know, the, the people that we think that may be eating the worst, you know, the poor people in the towns or people that are, you know, still uh, working next to their farms are eating actually quite better than the people in the cities, right? Because they have the connection to that, uh, um, to that farm, to that quality, as opposed to the people that, you know, maybe are buying at a big um, supermarket and just, they just don't know what the quality is and they're never asking. But because, you know, it is, uh, you know, packed beautifully and, you know, it is half in English, half in Spanish and it has a seal of approval or whoever, you know, people think that is that is quality, but actually that is not quality. So it, I think the consumer can do a lot. And in dairy is a huge thing. Uh, as I said, you know, we eat so much there in Mexico. If we demand better quality, it's easy to get there because it's not that difficult to take care of, a, of an animal uh, that is producing milk. You know, growing a vegetable is a little bit more, it's a little bit harder because you have, you, you plant today and you hope that, you know, it rains, it doesn't dry, it doesn't freeze, you know, all these things. And you're going to get that lechuga, those rabanos, you know, in like, two, three weeks, maybe seven months, whereas milk is like, you know, that cow ate yesterday and it gave you milk today. So it is quite fast that we see the value and the quality uh, of what the animal is eating in the production of the milk that, you know, that we're drinking and then what we're using. So how do we go from, from good milk to cheese? So once you have milk, you know, you have beautiful raw milk. Unpasteurized. Unpasteurized raw. Uh, leche cruda, bronca. Because of the regulation that exists in Mexico, if you're going to make a cheese that is going to be aged under 60 days, you know, a, a queso fresco, a panela that is going to so, be sold really fast, maybe one week after it's made, maybe 
you know, two weeks after it's made, it has to ma be made with pasteurized milk. If you're aging that cheese past 60 days, so two months, then you can use actually raw milk. So there are raw milk cheeses in Mexico. Queso Cotija de la Región de Origen, you know, the one that is made in Michoacán, is made with raw milk. And it is made possible that way because it has to be aged at least for 60 days. You really can find good quality cotija from the mountain that is younger than 90 days, right? But the panela is not the same. The panela that we are going to eat maybe was made today and is going to be sold in, you know, next week or maybe in two days in the mercado. That has to be by regulation made with pasteurized milk. That doesn't mean that... And how do you, how do you make it? How, how do you get that, that wonderful silkiness with the panela? Well, I mean, one thing, Mom, should we start, though, with cremas and then move up to cheeses? So, because I think that would be the gradual... Uh, sure. Evolution, no, Carlos. Let's do that, mom. Okay. Cause that way we can see. Like you get the milk, we make crema, then cheese comes from out. Let's do that, no? Yeah, that's a good idea. So let's say you have you have good quality milk, right? And you want crema, and so crema is basically you know the fat, the fattest part of that milk. So there is two ways that you can make it. One is by um, naturals. Um, acidification so that means that you know the the milk that you have that is raw it, it starts acidifying by itself you know it starts fermented fermenting by itself and then you remove that um sort of acidify acidify um fat acidified nata you know and then you liquefy it and you make crema <clears throat> there's a process also that is technical you can add citric acid into that, uh, that milk to turn it really fast. And that's what normally happens now. You know, people pasteurize the milk uh, and then they put citric acid, which could be, uh, you know, in powder form. Uh, people in, in the pueblos normally use vinegar or lime juice uh, to, to make their own crema. But, you know, the big industry is making it with um, citric acid. And so then you create that um, sort of fat, you separate that fat and then you liquefy it and that's how you end up with crema. Now here the problem is... That how do you liquefy it? You liquefy it by putting a little bit of the whey back <clears throat> and just putting it in a centrifuge. Uh, in a centrifuge, you know, it's just like, you know, you, if you're making it at home, you can just put it in your blender and, you know, centrifuge it and, and you end up with it. Now the problem is that in Mexico, a lot of people have the memory of crema that is very thick, right? Crema espesa. And then they seem to not be able to find it. And the reason is because the milk quality has gone down. So it doesn't have that same amount of fat. And so we're, you know, the industry is making crema with milk that is of lower quality. And so it's not so thick, not so espesa. And so what ends up happening is that now a lot of producers are using uh, gomas and uh, powders and all sorts of stuff to add to create that sort of uh, texture and so body you, yeah to that body and that just tastes horrible I I mean yeah. I when I go to the the supermercado in Mexico and I buy that I'm always like oh this just doesn't taste good you know it has that sort of like sort of rancid flavor at the end yeah. and it's from those. Um, yeah, from all those uh, chemicals added um, to create something that before was being just done by quality milk. 
So we have like a really like something very liso, very smooth, like a crema mexicana. And then you get something like a, a, a crema salvadoreña, which is thicker. How does that process get? It just they just add more fat and the, so the consistency is, is denser. Or how, how does that work? Yeah, exactly that. So it's just more fat. It's just pure fat. You know, if you want something more, more, more thick, you put less way to, to liquefy it and you end up with something mm -hmm. fatter. Um, also, you have to think that, you know, crema, crema in Mexico actually changes, right? Like the crema from Puebla is not the same crema from Chiapas. You know, the, the Chiapanecos mm -hmm. like to eat the crema very, very thick. Uh, on top of tamales, whereas, you know, if you're putting it in enchiladas in Puebla, you want sort of something that is more silky, more watery. And so they put more whey on it to make it more liquid. And so it is it is always a said crema. But what I think is interesting for people to know and, and is that that acidification is coming from a process that normally was made, you know, far, by normal fermentation and now is made by you know, adding um, a, a fermentation process, which is again citric acid or vinagre or, um, yeah. or, or lime, yeah. Okay, so then, so then you take the, the leftover whey. Is this a time to talk about the cason? Yeah, I think this is a good time to talk right. about the cason. I think that's a great idea. Exactly. So you know, what, okay. so is it correct to, to liken it to ricotta? Because ricotta means recooked, right? Recooked in, in Italian, no? So how, how, would we, how can we make that distinction? So this is, I think, fascinating, right? Like ricotta means twice cooked and requesón means, you know, dos veces cocido, right? And so why, do, why is it so different, right? Like normally we think, why is this so different that requesón and ricotta are not the same? The issue is that ricotta in Italy is normally being made with full fat milk, right? Not just whey, actually. It has full fat milk and they are recooking that. And so the ricotta ends up being more heavy. Whereas in Mexico or most of Central America, uh, Mexico and Central America, we're using just the whey. So you already took part of the fat to make mantequilla you know, butter, or you already do it to the crema, right? And so you end up with a with a way that is lower in fat. And so when you're turning that into recason, it is going to be a less um, um, creamy. creamy. Uh, and so it, it, it changes profiles, but it's the same process. It's just, uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's just um, a, a different process. We actually, uh, at Lactography, and this is not a, an ad for myself, but we sell both ricotta de leche or requesón de leche and requesón de suero. So we sell both, you know, made with milk and made with, with whey. Cut, and it depends on really what you want. We want you to do an ad for yourself, okay? <laughs> this is the time to be Mexican and promote yourself and your businesses because you're doing a very valiant mission. And I think it's important for everyone that's listening to understand that. So please do not feel bad about telling what you offer and how you sell it because I think this is really... Eso es lo que se trata, lo que estamos haciendo, ¿no? That's so, awesome. yeah. So the beautiful thing about Requeson and, and, and understanding the distinction of it, I think you did a beautiful job defining that, no? Um so let's talk. What do you want? You want to talk about panela, mommy? Because I know that you already touched yeah. upon it. You seem very passionate about it. I think one of the things that I would like to, to kind of make the distinction is because I'm a big fan, obviously, of Oaxaca and the idea of queso panela being likened to mozzarella or queso de hebra. I, I would like to really kind of maybe dive a little bit deeper and find out what those 
those lines are, please, Carlos. Right. And so I, I'm very happy to talk about this. I do think that we're missing one product still in the middle of these two, which is Aquajada. Yes, please, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Right? And Aquajada. Right, Sarela? So Aquajada is yeah, such an important thing, and people normally forget that Aquajada is a whole dairy product that exists in Mexico that is used for so many things, right? And so if you're making... Um, you know, uh, una, uh, uh, salsa de crema, you're not putting milk. You're actually putting cuajada. You already had to churn some of the milk. Uh, you also can make it into, uh, into a dessert, into torrejas. You can also use it uh, to make uh, cookies, uh, right? So this cuajada is such an important uh, thing. But the problem is that because it goes bad so fast, uh, most people cannot buy it in the supermarket. And so you either go to the mercado and buy it there, or you just end up using, you know, queso crema or, you know, some other type of products that Guajada, um, are not Guajada anymore. So I think... So let's try to define Guajada in English for our, for our Anglo listening audience, please. <laughs> so how can we best describe that, please? So I think people in Wisconsin... We'll understand this better, but let's say, you know, you start to making cheese and once you make that cheese, you know, the, the, the milk solidifies and it becomes kind of a, a gel, right? And then you cut that way, that, cut that gel and you separate the whey from the curd. Now that curd, right, is cuajada. Uh -huh. In Wisconsin, what they end up doing is they make, they put salt into it and they make salty curds, you know, the chewy and they curds. Fry it. And, and then they, they fry, fry it, yeah. right? And so yeah. that is cuajada. But cuajada that has not been, has not salt added, that is just a sort of fresh curd, is what cuajada is. But as you can imagine, that product goes bad so fast, but it has that sort of milky, lactic, a little bit of sour, a little bit of acidic taste to it. That is so unique. But for that, to be able to have that, you have to have, you have to be making cheese yourself. <laughs> yeah. Is that like what they call hoop cheese? Yes, exactly. So hoop cheese, you know, queso de, queso de granja, you know, is that sort of uh -huh. first step before you, it, it's just a very simple cheese that you just took the, the, the curd out, put it in the hoop, and that's it, right? You didn't press it, you didn't mill it, you didn't, um, you didn't wrap it in any type of, uh, leaf because that will change the flavor and it will also change the acidification so cuajada is 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 yeah it is that very specific type of uh, thing and these quesos you know the 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 hoop cheese quesos queso fresco queso de, de rancho queso de hoja are all cheeses that are normally used in mexico in or at least in southern mexico you know oaxaca veracruz chiapas for breakfast and the reason to make to use those cheeses for breakfast is that those cheeses were being made uh you know that that was milk in the mor in the early morning at five in the morning they turned into into cheese uh, and then they sell that really fast and that gives the producer of milk some quick cash and that was so important for people in the mercados, right? To be able to sell something and have cash right away because they have to buy, you know, salt or they have to buy, um, you know, supplements for their animals or they have to just eat themselves, right? So this is a whole part of the culture in Mexico that we're losing as, you know, less people are in sustained um, 
in, in subsistence uh, farming, uh, you know, people don't need maybe money that right away anymore. And so they, that, but we're losing some of that culture of morning cheeses, of dairy products of the morning. And I think it's important to mention that, you know, I, I think queso fresco is the, is the most popular, it's, it's the most consumed cheese in Mexico, right? Queso fresco, no? And, um, you know, I've worked with Cacique for many years, you know, for 10 years plus, and I think they do a, a great job as far as trying to bring things to the masses. You know, Carlos, you probably have your own opinions about that, but we won't really necessarily get into that. But I have no I think bad opinion on that. I think you are a great ambassador for cheese, and I thank you for having introduced so good cheese to, to, uh, to the U.S. audience. I, I think that there's no purest moment here. I think people just need to eat better. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 35 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail served on the beautiful patio, which has ample room for social distancing. Travelers from around the world find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. You know that at the ranch, every, every lunch, we had asadero. You know, because we, we, used to, we used to make it and they would bring it to the table in a, in still in the, in the iron pan. And they would serve it to us at a tortilla. You know the the ever. So how how is that made? So I think this is the perfect way. You know, asadero, and then coming back to the question from Aaron, talking about uh, you know queso Oaxaca. And so let me go back to you know ancient times to Armenia. Uh, you know, in 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 um, in uh, sort of Middle East Europe. So there is a type of cheese, a family of cheese called. Pool curd in English is better known for its name in Italian. That is um, pasta filata. Uh, in Spanish, is um, pasta hilada. So this is a whole family of cheeses, and so people are familiar with this family of cheeses because they know provolone, mozzarella, and burrata from Italy. But the original cheese is from Armenia. The, or maybe not the original, but the, one of the first ones of this, of this style is from Armenia. Um, it, these cheeses exist of pasta filata, which is a sort of like, you know, that you can make evra, that you can, um, the stringiness. Um, there's some in Spain, there's some in France. And then, of course, this travels into the Americas and <clears throat> almost... Half of the countries in Latin America have a pasta hilada cheese. So in Mexico, we have two. We have asadero and queso Oaxaca, which is actually queso de Uh In Colombia, it's called queso paipa. Uh, in Venezuela, it's called queso de mano. Uh, in, um, so, you know, this style of cheese actually exists in a lot. In Argentina, it's called proboleta, actually. Uh, you know, so this is a big family of cheese. Now, what is so interesting about making this cheese is that 
again, we go back to the to the bat. You know, we do that gel, you know, and we cut the curd. And we take some of that whey out. And the whey that we're taking out, we're adding warm milk, sorry, warm water. And so that warm water starts to melt the curd. And so that's when the moment, you know, at the, the right pH, at, which is 5.5, the right pH, um, it, the, the curd starts kind of melting away. And that's the moment that you can grab that curd and pull it. And so make that sort of like strings of cheese. Um, and you can decide to make, you know, mozzarella or queso de obra. Now, what is interesting between the differences between the two cheeses of Mexico that use this uh, technique, one is asadero and the other one is queso de obra. Asadero is made normally with milk that um, is fresh and has not been fermented. Whereas queso Oaxaca, in Oaxaca, in Reyesetla, which is where you know, it originally kind of started, it is made with milk that has been partially skim, and the milk has sour. That's why queso Oaxaca that has that tangy, sort of lactic, uh, citrusy flavor at the end because it has started to ferment. And it's also not super fat because they have taken some of the fat away to use as cuajada, right? And also to use as crema. And so Oaxaca, queso Oaxaca is so distinct and and what I think what has happened is that people have that memory, but now the big industry in Mexico is making queso Oaxaca with full uh, cream with non-acidification, and so you end up with a Oaxaca that is kind of rubbery, right? It is like hard, you know, it's really chewy, and the original Oaxaca is not like that. And the reason is this thing is that you know is is it was a milk that has already been pre-process because producers, you know, the, the dairy people need to maximize the amount of milk that they have to, to be able to make the most money out of just the one liter or the 10 liters that they have. Yeah. Um, I think that's, 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 I think that's very important. And I think the idea of being able to make that distinction, as you said, of the asadero, because it's something that's very, uh, I think fond and we have great memories of it in the North because you don't really see asadero in many other parts, and for me at least, I, I, you can find in other parts of Mexico, but for me it's very northern, right? And in the, in the idea of queso Oaxaca. But I think that also brings us to the idea of the artisanal cheeses and the Spanish influence that came to Mexico and how cheese started changing. So I, I would love to be able to talk about that uh, and be able, Carlos, to sort of bridge those, the new world and the old world, you know? Sure. So the first thing is that, you know, there was no dairy animals in Mexico before the Spanish arrived, right? There was no culture of dairy, nothing at all. And so really cheese comes with the Spaniards. And the Spaniards are not known necessarily, or the Spaniards that came at the beginning are not necessarily known for cheeses made with cow's milk. They're known for cheeses made with sheep's milk. Right. So they're they're from Castilla-La Mancha in the center of Spain. And those are queso manchego, ombra, you know, um, artesano. You know, it's all those chips milk cheeses uh, that are delicious. And, and, you know, they have a very distinct way of usage in, in Spain. So, you know, these people arrive and they brought their animals and the cows that they brought 
weren't necessarily cows for milk. They were cows that are called doble propósito, you know, for a double for two purposes. It is cows that you can eat as meat and you can also use for their milk, right? But that means that the the you're using both the male and the female, right? Because the males are good for nothing other than for eating meat. Uh, really, if you're not creating meat, you really don't need the males for anything. You need one bull and maybe not even one anymore, you know, to make, you know, uh, female cows that, you know, give you the milk. Anyway, so they arrive and they brought this culture of cheese making. But the first cheeses that appear in Mexico, uh, still under the, you know, the colonial rule, are made with sheep's milk. And so the, 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 in my book, uh, you know, I, I did all sorts of research on sort of the historical aspects. And the first cheese that appears in Mexico is in Puebla and it is made with sheep's milk. So closer to a manchego from, from Spain. And then it is it, you, the, the indigenous peoples of Mexico were lactose intolerant because they didn't eat dairy past, you know, they were babies. Right? They didn't need the enzyme in themselves, so their bodies stopped making it. So it took a long time for the indigenous peoples to actually start um, developing a tolerance for dairy and a liking for, for dairy. Right? Um, some, of the, some of the things that I have read from historians and also from some of the indigenous scholars say that also people um, of that time saw queso and you know, all the dairy products as too close as pulque. And because pulque was really a ceremonial drink, right? It wasn't like, you know, that we're going to be dairy, drinking dairy all the time. And so that creates this sort of like t- time lag between when the Spanish started making cheese and when the, you know, the Mexicans, you know, the people or the Americans in Mexico uh, start actually eating cheese. So the first cheeses that we started making are, you know, all the ones that we have talked about, all the queso fresco, panela, and, you know, and it takes a long time for a development of other cultures of cheese. Um, however, Mexico has, you know, other than blue cheese, which is really, is the one style we don't make, uh, we have quesos de montaña, we have hard cheeses, we have goat's milk cheeses, we have all sorts of other stuff that has been developing, you know, f- uh, for the past uh, uh, 200 years. The, the, the scholars in the Universidad de Chapingo, who are the ones that have done the most research on this, you know, because my book is, is more sort of in cheese culture, but they have really done a lot of the technical research. Uh, they identified... Um, uh, 60 traditional Mexican cheeses, um, of which ha- we have already lost 20 of them. And what does it mean that we have lost them? That these cheeses are not being made anymore, but there's also no one that remembers how they're made. And so that means that we have lost them completely. And so there are, you know, we really need to share the 40 cheeses that we still have because they're going to go away if we don't start eating them. And how come that we can't eat them here in the United States? Oh, this is, this, is, this is the most difficult part of this interview I'm going to be here to tell you. Um, and I'm going to come out and say, all right, uh, the FDA, which is the one that regulates the uh, food production uh, and, and the, the entry of food into the United States, is racist, full-on racist. It has created all sorts of loopholes and rules and everything. So not 
no single dairy product can come from Mexico. That is not the same for other countries in Latin America. It is just pure, like, don't liking you know, Mexican products and, Mexi and, 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 and Mexican systems. And we have looked into this really closely because there's no reason why Mexico that has a very good production of milk uh, cannot enter with its products to the United States. And so it basically has to do, you know, with this idea that, you know, things from Mexico are not... Well, the lobbyists, I mean, Carlos, I mean, let, let's be honest, right? The people, you know, there's a lot of people behind dairy that, that are powerful, right? And exactly. I think there's a little bit of that as well. Yeah. yeah. So that and a little bit of, you know, chauvinism and, you know, good old racism that nothing is as good as it is made in the other side of the border. Although, you know, there's like you know, Mexican communities that have been in Texas for, you know, the past 200 years and they have eaten dairy as well. So, you know, and that's why we don't find them in the United States. Um, now, there are products made in the United States by, um, by people that have either migrated to the United States or that, you know, they're second generation, third generation, and they're making dairy products. Also, there is this chauvinistic idea that anything coming from Mexico should be cheap. And good quality dairy is not cheap. It can be cheap. You know, if you're eating your animals correctly and you're treating, treating them humanely and you're making a good product and paying your employees, it's never going to be cheap. And so that, that conception has to go away that, you know, because it's crema mexicana has to be cheap. It, it can be cheap if you use the worst ingredients. But if you want good product like, you know, people eat in Mexico, it's going to be as expensive as the products that you're paying from Europe. Yeah, anything like anything else, you have to pay for good product, right? And I think that's interesting to mention because, you know, I think nowadays we're living in the era of the foodie. I think the pandemic has allowed people to be more informed about where their product comes from and seek out these very niche. And I, it's, it's hard to say niche because Mexican cheese has been around for so long, but we really encourage everyone that's listening to be able to go find that out. And hopefully we educated you guys and, and our audience as far as what to look for. I think that's very important. And I think, Carlos, you've done such an eloquent job of being able to explain that. And I think uh, we need to continue to do that and, and, and educate ourselves about where, where our cheeses are coming from. And ask for Mexican cheeses. And, and, and ask, why, we can't, why, why can't we procure them? Why can't we get them? And I think the moment that people start hearing the cheese counter, you know, for more people, I want Mexican cheese, I want Mexican cheese. And not only Mexican cheese, that you want, you know, Honduran and, and um, you know, cheeses from Colombia or cheeses from Uruguay. People are going to start paying attention. It's like maybe there is now a market that is willing to pay. And so those products are going to start coming. Because once you have the demand, there's nothing you can do. Like, you know, the people will find to bring it. And if we're bringing to the United States, you know, products from Australia, you know, dairy products from Australia, there is just no reason why there's no dairy products from Mexico. Um, I want to cover two cheeses before we end, because the, the time is running and, you know, and we haven't talked about Mennonite cheese and we haven't talked about panela. So panela is a cheese that is uh, very simple because it doesn't require more than cutting out the curd and then hooping that cheese and then lightly pressing it. The cheese gets lightly salted by putting salt on top of the cheese. And so it is a cheese that 
benefits from full cream, from full fat in the in the milk. And so it has that sort of creamy, silky uh, flavor. And normally it doesn't have that much salt, but it has some salt that is used for um, the sort of um, um, preservation of the cheese. Because if you don't put salt, you know, it starts decaying and it starts going bad. So salt acts as, as a preservative. Uh, the second cheese that you ask is Mennonite cheese. And so the Mennonite cheese, I think, is a wonderful, wonderful story. You know, the Mennonites arrived to the United States and Canada, uh, <clears throat> um, you know, being prosecuted in Europe because their religious beliefs. Um, and then once they arrive in the, in the United States, they are still prosecuted for their religious beliefs. And so they need to emigrate. And so Mexico gives them asylum in the north. And so they move to Chiap to sorry to Chihuahua and they arrive and settle in two communities uh, which is Ciudad Cuauhtémoc and Ciudad Victoria in Chihuahua and they are uh, you know they bring their their culture and their language and if you go right now to the Mennonites communities in northern Mexico they still speak in their language and they only deal with you if you make an attempt to try to speak with them in their own language um, some of them now also speak Spanish, but it's not m most of them that speak Spanish. Uh, most of them will, you know, all of them will speak their own language, and some of them will speak either Spanish or English, depending also on where they are. Um, so they make a type of cheese that they brought from the Netherlands, <coughs> uh, which is where they're originally from. And this cheese is one that is, you, you need high... Um, High uh, fat uh, in the milk is a cheese, uh, it's a curd that is fermented after it has been curdled. So once you cut it, it, you let it ferment and so it builds acidity and so it creates that sort of sharp flavor that we, that we think of cheddar, for example. And so then that cheese gets put into um, the mold and it gets pressed. And it's in that pressing that you create the texture of the cheese. And then it gets salted um, by putting it in a brine. So instead of putting salt on top, like in the panela that I was explaining, this one is you put the wheel of cheese into a, a brine salt, which is 10% uh, um, salt, 90% water. And so that is how it gets salted. And so that's what Mennonite, uh, Mennonite cheese. Uh, normally cheese, Dairy and cheese is uh, the work of the men of the community in Mennonite communities. And then women um, normally tend to, uh, you know, the vegetable crops and, and all those things, but they also make fermented products. So, you know, sauerkraut and other pickles that are um, originally from their culture are made by women. And so normally, if you go buy from them, they will give you, you know, a piece of cheese, Mennonite cheese, and then a fermented food, maybe an onion, maybe um, maybe some cabbage, you know, to eat along. That's how they eat it. Uh, of course, it's a cheese that melts really well. And so in the north of Mexico, it's all, all used for uh, quesadillas in, in tortillas de harina.
Well, Carlos, thank you so much. I mean, the time has just gone away, and I think we, we can definitely um, come back and visit some more, more um, personalized cheeses and maybe some of the more unique ones from different smaller pockets in Mexico and Latin America. I think we can't uh, limit ourselves just to Mexico, and I would, we'd love to have you back to continue this, this charla, as they say, or this conversation. I think it's been absolutely phenomenal. Uh, how can our listeners uh, uh, be able to engage with you do you have a website, an email that you feel comfortable uh, extending? Sure, of course. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation, of course. Uh, I People can find our company in Mexico. It's called Lactography. And, you know, we sell cheese in Mexico City and you can order from us and, you know, we'll deliver to your house in Mexico City. And then if you're looking for me, you can just look Carlos Jescas. It doesn't matter where your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram uh, I think even TikTok. And so you can find me there and ask me questions. I love to chat about cheese. Uh, and, you know, I love talking about dairy and Mexico and all these wonderful things. So thank you so much for having me, Sarela and Aaron. Of course. So today we've been talking about all things Mexican dairy. Of course, we've covered a lot of subject matter with cremas, requesones, panelas, artisanal cheese. Our, our guests have been, of course, the, in, the incomparable Carlos Yescas. Uh, he continues to do this really beautiful work promoting Mexican cheeses, and he has these beautiful companies that will allow you to have the cheeses come to you as well. Uh, this has been an absolute pleasure. I hope everyone's enjoyed this. Uh, of course, this is Cooking in Mexican from A to Z on Heritage Radio Network, and I know uh, Carlos also has his platform there as well, so please seek him out as well. And uh, muchísimas gracias. Estamos muy agradecidos. Gracias. Cooking in Mexican from A to Z is powered by Simple Cast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without your support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>